Welcome to the WNCA Podcast. This is your host, Jack Gaines. WNCA is a product of the Civil Affairs Association and brings in people who are current or former military, diplomats, development officers, and field agents to discuss their experiences on ground with a partner nation's people and leadership. Our goal is to inspire anyone interested in working the last three feet of foreign relations. To contact the show, email us at capodcasting at gmail.com. Or look us up on the Civil Affairs Association website at www.civilaffairsassos.org. I'll have those in the show notes. Shadow governments. What they're doing is they're performing governance, but what they're providing to the resistance or insurgency is legitimacy. Today, we welcome Josh Bedingfield, who is studying at the Army School of Advanced Military Studies, or SAMS. I brought Josh in today to talk about his upcoming paper, the value proposition of shadow governments and resistance operations, which should be out this summer. Josh will give us a preview of his findings and discuss how they are applied. This is part one of two. The second portion will be out next week. So let's get started. I am by trade a Baltic guy is how I would describe myself. I've done a lot of work in the Baltics and then a tour where I was focused on the entirety of the UCOM AOR. Do you bump into the 353 Civil Affairs Command? I have worked with them personally. There was actually a 353 Civil Affairs team in Latvia while I was in Latvia. So there were two CA teams, one used to KPOC and 195th while we were there. Okay. Did somebody plan that or is it just, they just happened to be there because two sides of the coin were thrown in the pond? Man, uh, that's, a, that's a short question that begs <laughs> a very complex answer. You'd think the J9 would be like, I'm bringing an active duty and a reserve one to Latvia, and this is what I need you guys to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It yeah. Would all, you'd also think that there was some delineation and responsibilities. Oh, absolutely. And synthesize efforts. But that's our job, so. Well, and this is the same thing that the Marine Corps, with their combination of influence and messaging, you know, that was one of their first frustrations is how do you get all these individuals who've had their own silos for so long work together? And, and it, it almost resulted in torture. <laughs> I, I, yeah. Yeah. So I think what it is, is at some point we're going to have to just start competing to where people, like if a team lead wants to go out in the field and they start saying, okay, well, these are the, this is the combination that I need in order to make that happen. And I know Jack's a good PAO. I know that Andre is a good IO. And I want, if they're available, I want them to come with me. And and it goes by name so that we're more effective. Yeah, I would say that kind of aligns itself towards a theory of assignment by purpose or assignment by talent. Right. Right. Instead of saying, I need the insert position here, regardless of who is in that position. Because everyone's trained at the same level and capability. We need to make sure that the right person is in that position, or if the the right person is not in that position, it still needs just to be the the right person, regardless of position, right, to fulfill a specified function at a given time and place. Yeah, yeah. So, about your paper, do you want to give a big picture overview of it? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, I'm currently a student at the Advanced Military Studies Program at SAMS. Mm -hmm. One of the core outputs of your one-year time here is a research monograph. Sure. So I have started both research projects that I've done over the last two years. The first one at CGSC, it's an Order War Scholar, and then the second one here at SAMS. By just going to the Joint Special Operations University research proposals. Yeah. So I found one in there that had to do with shadow governments. 
what is their role? What's their purpose? What is our role as special operations forces within that portion of a resistance and or and I'm going to use a word here that I will, will come back around to or insurgency framework right. on my research proposal, mm-hmm. kind of looking at what our partners have to say about shadow governments in existing doctrine and or concepts. Right. And what I found was shadow governments are mentioned within special forces doctrine very minimally. There's about four paragraphs of text, right? We could translate that to about a few pages of text. We could even say that I'm partially wrong and that I'm missing some, but it's still a small amount. Right. And in multinational concepts, namely the resistance operating concept offered by Otto Fiala, he spends considerably more time talking about shadow governments. But I I argue he spends that time talking about shadow governments in terms of their relationship to enhancing the outcomes of other more common resistance or insurgency structures, notably the guerrillas underground and auxiliary. So I had to work my way towards understanding exactly what we meant when we said shadow government. So when we go by doctrine, shadow governments exist as one of three forms of what the U.S. Army doctrine defines as the the public component of a resistance or an insurgency. So the public component can manifest as either a shadow government, a government in exile, or an internally displaced government. The common thread of what each of those organizations do is that they provision governance, right? So if guerrillas fire weapons in order to cause some kind of a destructive effect, then the auxiliary perform and underground perform various functions like logistics and intelligence and providing safe haven. Okay. These forms of government are specifically purposed to providing governance in order to do two things simultaneously. The first thing is to enhance the connection between that resistance or insurgency with an existing government, right? Right. And to compete for influence and legitimacy with the occupying or opposing government. Okay. And speaking of guerrillas, I was thinking, is is there a difference between proxy networks and shadow governments? Is it because they're providing services to the public? So when we say proxy forces, where I would draw a clear delineation between them and shadow governments or even internally displaced governments or governments in exile, is that proxy invites a rhetoric where those conducting the activity aren't doing it on behalf of themselves. Right. There's an installation or another entity that is conducting those functions, maybe similar in terms of purpose or output, but to use a metaphor or a hypothetical situation, it would be like the United States sending United States personnel that don't necessarily find themselves as a, as a native part of that resistance or insurgency to go and perform the function of a shadow government or government in exile or, or an internally placed government. That would be a proxy. Okay. So and to give, a, give an example of a publicly known one would be Wagner. Sure. I mean, as a proxy. Whereas... In your examples, I think there's two good examples. One would be Myanmar and the national unity government that's the previously democratic government that's in exile. So they are what you would say is a shadow government versus the military um, regime that's in power now. Yeah. And, oh, you know what the second one would be? Because you were talking about um, 
like a rebel force that is trying to curry favor with the population, that probably was the FARC back when they were still in full revolt. Absolutely. Yeah. So the FARC had a component that was within what we would define it as an insurgency and they would define as resistance, right? Right. FARC never walked around saying, let's wage insurgency. They said resist. Right. Whether or not we define things as a resistance or an insurgency is purely based off of perspective. One man's freedom fighters, another man's terrorist. Is it kind of like that? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. And, and, and even terrorists finds itself an interesting bedfellow here with shadow governments, right? Because we would call the Taliban terrorists or insurgents kind of in the same sentence. And they might buy into that for messaging purposes, but the Taliban had a functioning sure. shadow government in Afghanistan for 20 years. Oh, absolutely. And it's interesting how I've seen it with terror groups and other insurgents in foreign policy where they're trying, they're driving to have some type of legitimacy and the United States does not recognize them or the host government will not recognize them. The Tamil Tigers is one example. Excellent example. Yeah. I mean, they fought for legitimacy. They had a government. They had, they had influence on the population, but they struggled with recognition and all the way through until they were finally um, acquiesced after that massive shelling on their population and military. But that one, that one just struck me as you were talking. So anyway, I'm, I apologize for cutting you off. No, it's no problem. You've actually circled back around to the root question. What is the research about? In looking at what we have to say and multinational concepts have to say about shadow governments, mm -hmm. right? We don't say a lot about it. So I said, okay, well, I think that they're important. That's my gut feeling. What I was inclined to do is just say, hey, I need to make an argument about why the U.S. government needs to care about shadow governments more, notably like RSOF, sure. Army Special Operations Forces. When we talk about supporting, disrupting, or building resistances, we need to care more about it. But we don't have enough in there to be able to determine if that's, that juice is worth the squeeze. So the core research question I came up with is, what is the value proposition of a shadow government? What are its advantages and disadvantages in terms of a resistance structure? What does it provide to a resistance that is novel and unique aside from what you get in pretty much any resistance, which almost unilaterally includes guerrillas and undergrounds and auxiliaries? What does a shadow government do for you? And what you were just talking about is kind of what I found in sure. the research is that when you're talking about a shadow government exercising governance within the occupied territory of, you know, what we might define as a denied environment and old doctrine. Mm -hmm. They're in the zone of control of an opposition government. Right. What they're doing is they're performing governance, but what they're providing to the resistance or insurgency is legitimacy. Mm -hmm. So I perform a function. I pay out in terms of an output, and what I get back in terms of currency is legitimacy. And what I had to do in order to define legitimacy, because interestingly, it's not really cleanly defined in U.S. military doctrine, sure. is I married up a few things that doctrine says with a few researchers. And essentially, when I say legitimacy, what I mean is the number of people who support an authority. Okay. That is the measure of legitimacy. So if if a resistance has X number of guerrillas and X number of auxiliary and X number of underground, they have 200,000 people right. that support that resistance. 
either materially or immaterially, passively. Right. When right. given a choice, they're going to say, I'm going to follow that resistance that they tell me to do something. That's legitimacy. That's people willfully obeying that authority at the expense often of obeying the opposition authority. Right. You saw something very similar in Burundi with that attempted coup back in 2016, I believe. Mm -hmm. The ruler was out of country. They blocked the airport and they threw a coup, but they weren't able to overthrow the Ministry of Defense. So when the leader got back in country, the Ministry of Defense went after the coup leaders, but there's still a heavy support for the opposition. Yeah. Let's look at that example. So when that was occurring, when there was this surge of support, Mm -hmm. I would argue we need to look at that in terms of what the balance of legitimacy is, is that you had a government that was looking at the people saying, don't revolt. Right. I'm going to institute a measure of martial law. I'm going to deploy some of my police. I'm going to deploy some of my military. I'm going to try and exercise my instruments of power to either get you to willingly not take action or compel you into inaction. Right. And on the response you got, Some people, and this is the curse of the information of absence, Mm -hmm. where we don't really have a good idea of the number of people that heard that message from the government and said, all right, I'm not going to go out and protest today. I'm I'm not going to support it. Right. I will tell you that that N is definitely more than zero. But what you saw is a huge number of people who heard that message and say, "Mm, when given the choice of willfully obeying or being coerced into obedience by the existing authority, I'm going to choose to obey the resistance who is telling me, go to the streets, take action today. That is representation of legitimacy of an opposition power. And you really only get that in large returns based off of my research if there is a form or another of a shadow government at play. So essentially, I had a few findings. Mm -hmm. My hypothesis is that shadow governments form governance, and the output of governance is legitimacy. Yes. Which means that the function of a shadow government is to return to the resistance or insurgency legitimacy. And my hypothesis is that as shadow governments increase in their efficiency, there is a correlative increase in two other variables. The first variable is the odds that the resistance is successful. There's some interesting research by a young lady named Chenoweth, who in her book, Why Civil Resistance Works, as soon as you get a nonviolent resistance that has 3.5% of the civil population supporting you, the odds that you are going to be victorious skyrocket. There's a noticeable jump in the odds that you are successful. Chenoweth, that sounds familiar. Fantastic book, highly advised it to anybody in the civil affairs community. Why Civil Resistance Works by Erica Genoa. I'll get a link to it. I'll circle back around too, because I actually, it's two people. It's Erica Chenoa and Maria J. Stephan. Right. Okay. Okay. So I just took that and said, hey, we can take that as a generalism that says you can increase your legitimacy, which is the number of people to support you to such a degree that the odds that you are going to be successful approach definitive, mm-hmm. absent some kind of a massive crackdown on behalf of the government. And then secondly, is that as your legitimacy increases, the odds that there is going to be a subsequent resistance to your victory decrease because the people are bought into your structure. Right. So 
I did two case studies on this hypothesis. I looked at solidarity in Poland, which was my nonviolent resistance scenario. And I looked at the Viet Cong in Vietnam, essentially after the, the French Indochina War. What we would define as the Vietnam War, but really we're looking at 1955 through U.S. termination of involvement. Right. As the violent one, right? Because the Viet Cong were obviously violent. But they also had a robust shadow government. They did. They had cities. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we say cities. So literature refers to it differently. They will call it the Viet Cong infrastructure. Yeah. The Viet Cong shadow government. I even found some authors that simply just thought that the whole thing was an intelligence operation. But I mean, Morris, his research on the Viet Cong shadow government, they had cells of governing authorities that reached all the way from Hamlet to national level that were so robust. One of her great quotes in her book is that when Saigon fell, when the North Vietnamese rolled into South Vietnam and declared victory, there was this immediate transition. It was almost imperceptible where the shadow government, because it had so much legitimacy and had so deeply ingrained itself into the runnings of the South Vietnamese sphere, it just became the government. They just traded hands. They just traded hands. It just became the government. And frankly, a similar thing happened in solidarity. There's a different transience of events because you have 10 years of martial law where solidarity is pushed into the shadows. But when they finally emerge, Jaruzelski's martial law goes away and you've got Perestroika come in and there's this evening of the playing field and solidarity becomes legalized again. They go to the polls and all that legitimacy that they built back a decade before that in 1981, 1982, 1983, is just still there. Right. Solidarity gets elected in a landslide victory, and nobody looks at it sideways. You're talking about the Polish Solidarity Movement, right? Yeah. With Lech Wałęsa. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Just checking. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you look at that, and then a good kind of check on it is, okay, well, how do I confirm that that's a good finding? And I will give you a counter argument, like a straw man to it, right? Sure. Those institutions had good legitimacy. They had legitimate support amongst the population. And there's no resistance to them afterwards. What is a good example of a successful insurgency? I will take the heat on defining it as such in the aftermath of this. Who did not have good legitimacy amongst the populace and continued to face a resistance to their rule? The Taliban. Sure. They can walk out of the conflict and say we've been successful the Taliban shadow government, to a degree, assumes control of the Afghanistan government, but they don't have real legitimacy because they've been relying on coercive legitimacy to compel the population into obedience rather than actually establishing good governance with them, good, strong bond. Right. And they take it's, control and they immediately have a threat on their doorstep because they're not perceived legitimate. Yeah. And that's a tough one. That's a tough one to define because in a way they came in with an integrated governance system so that, like you said, they were able to basically hand over the keys and they had people at every level, provincial level, all the way up to the national taking positions, but they did it in a course of way. But are they, are they still, are they a legitimate government or are we just holding a blind and we're holding a blind eye to it? Or are they an Ill illegitimate government that is oppressing its population? And this is where the term legitimacy gets a little weird. So I have to look at it from a very specific viewpoint of legitimacy when applied to the population. Sure. But 
when we ask a broad question like, is the government legitimate? We can look at that and say, oh, well, let's look at the percentage of the population is that willingly obeys the Taliban government. Right. But when we expand that perspective is into a question of like, is it internationally legitimate? Then we have to come up with a totally different framework for it, right? Like, is it internationally recognized? Right. Do they have allies? Do they have treaties? Well, and that, that's an argument you can place on Iran and a dozen other countries, you know, because that's that sure. legitimacy is hard to define. It's hard to define, which is why I really tried to stick to it from a perspective of the people. Okay. And what I would argue, and I'll cite Florian Wiegand, uh, he wrote a great book called Waiting for Dig Dignity, Legitimacy, and Authority in Afghanistan. I took a really great look at how the Taliban shadow government executed its functions through the conflict, and then also you know, a little bit of a look at Jairoa's actions throughout that, that area. And the problem on both, which is a, a key part of the research that I conducted, was if we look at it through what governance actually is, which I don't define the same way that the U.S. Army defines it, sure. it's not just the, the actions of a government. First and foremost, my own little insurgency, it just baffles me. And I strongly encourage that we as a profession actively work toward directly acknowledging that governance is not the function of governments alone. There are systems of authority all around that have nothing to do with governments that shape our daily lives, right? True. So we have to find a way to say what governance is without just saying it's things that governments do. And if we do that, I'm a big fan of Morgan Key and Salomon Magnuson's theory on the social contract theory. And they say essentially governance boils down to three lines of effort. You have shared values, performance and services of systems of exchange. Right. So instead of categorizing it by a type of action of actor, they categorize it by the types of actions of an actor. And they say, hey, this is how you get authority. You build systems of exchange, you provision services and performance, and you do so by demonstrating shared values with those who are being governed. And if you do that well, they're going to give you legitimacy. They're going to choose to buy into this system, this contract that you have put forward with them. And what Jairoa the Taliban shadow government didn't do very well was demonstrate shared values. Okay. And they covered up poor metrics of performance and really didn't have good systems of exchange. I mean, I was in Afghanistan as a platoon leader back in 2011 in a little tiny district center just south of Bagram. And, you know, it's this little village and there's hills all around them. And they don't look up like we do in America. I look up and I see Uncle Sam in the clouds, right? Like the, the federal government is a part of my daily life. The state government is a part of my daily life. I interact with them through various means and mechanisms as a part of the way that we are structured. They don't do that in Afghanistan. A local village looks at their elders and they look at the systems of power that actually shape how they go about their lives. And so a purely democratic form of government where there's this representative democracy with these representatives, you know, speaking on behalf of tribes that they don't actually geolocate themselves with. There's actually great ties about why the Vietnamese shadow government, why the Viet Cong shadow government was successful. Similar values out there and where the South Vietnamese government was trying to build this strong Western facing democracy. The Viet Cong were saying, hey, I understand that you guys are much more focused at the hamlet and town level, hyper-local forms of governance, and that's where I'm going to be. Yeah. So you might have had a South Vietnamese government actor that was governing a large area, 
but the people in the hamlets didn't see that. They didn't have a system of exchange with it. There was no way to build shared values there. That's how the Taliban were trying to influence as well, is to reach out underneath the provincial governance and go into these villages and work with the elders in order to get support. Right. Agree wholeheartedly as long as we define the word work in that sentence as coerce. Right. Right. Violently coerce. There were times where they were just out there paying off for influence. And there were other times where it was agreements on keeping a mosque open or allowing public weddings. So it wasn't always at the barrel of a gun or at a threat. Sometimes it was trying to get collaboration with the local population, if they could. Sure. If they, if they couldn't, then yeah. they got into coercion. Let's they, say that the overriding majority of the time. Yeah, yeah. That's a great way to put it, right? Like if there was an easy way to do it, then yeah, we're going to get legitimate. We're going to get actual shared values or a system built on actual shared values. But if I don't get it, then I'm not, a, I'm not above, you know, a night letter. Right. Or executing your, your father or something. Right. And that's why the U.S.'s counter-Taliban influence program focused on having people on the ground doing atmospherics. And then when a local elder was in contact with the Taliban and they were saying, oh, yeah, we'll leave your moderate mosque open or we'll allow you to have sports plus females can have sports too. We would find out from other atmospherics that no, they had shut that down in other towns. And we would get those reports to that village elder. So they knew what was going on around them. And that would give them more power to say, well, you're already shutting people down here and there. So I don't trust you. Sure. And that was in hopes of then building reasonable police force security around that village, support of state with governance and aid for development. I never felt like the the counter-Taliban program coalesced that well. Yeah. And again, not to to chirp on it a lot, but there's another great parallel with what the U.S. military's approach to combating the Viet Cong shadow government was. Right. In Afghanistan, the program you just mentioned, I would add to it, you had the VSO program. And then the contrast to that in the Vietnam War was the Phoenix Cords program, Right. right? Which is same dual purpose. Phoenix, which was admittedly a kill capture, very enemy centric. I'm going to remove the personnel that are performing this function by either a killer capture method. Now that's Phoenix. And then Cords was their anti-governance approach. And this is where, again, our doctrine really, there's a gap in it. When we say that governance is the activities of a government, then when we say you know, hypothetically speaking, we're conducting governance activities or transitional governance, which is the the recently updated 3-57, then we're saying that when we are conducting an operation in line with governance, what we're doing is strengthening the activities of a government. We're building resilient structures within them. We're making them perform better in some way, shape, or form. Sure. But what we just talked about is two great examples where we applied military and to a degree whole government approach, but we did it to weaken a form of governance. Yes. It wasn't, I'm not going to say that there wasn't a purpose in Vietnam to strengthen the South Vietnamese government. Won't say that those programs in Afghanistan weren't meant to strengthen Jiroa, but there was a purpose within them to weaken the opposition shadow government. Sure. Break down those structures, reorient the people away from them toward the structures we need them to be bought into. And that's counter-governance. That's an activity that is purposed toward breaking governance. And again, if we don't have a good framework, which I argue we don't, 
on what governance actually is, then it becomes very difficult to qualify what exactly governance is, a governance activity is or operation, or a counter-governance operation. Then we just have to say big things like strengthen government. I very much agree with you because what I saw was mirroring, where we just in place the U.S.-style judicial system, or we in placed a parliamentary system, but we didn't really look at how we can reinforce the local community, local leader, governance, those networks that were already naturally there. We didn't reinforce those into something that would be a national government. We just, we just imposed a style that we thought would fit. And I'll be honest, a Greco-Roman judicial system was already tried by the Greeks and the Romans, and it didn't work. So I'm not really sure why we're trying the same thing over. That sounds kind of like trying to repeat the same thing over and over to find a new solution. This is another reason why I really like Kay and Magnuson's theory on social contract, because what it says is you could theoretically have great systems of exchange and really stellar performance and services metrics. But if it's not built on shared values, right, you're a fraud. It's just increasingly becoming simpler to determine or at least question the motives that were presented. That's part one of two. We'll see Josh next week where he'll finish his discussion on the value proposition of shadow governments. Thanks for listening. If you get a chance, please like and subscribe and rate the show on your favorite podcast platform. Also, if you're interested in coming on the show or hosting an episode, email us at capodcasting at gmail.com. I'll have the email and CA Association website in the show notes. And now, most importantly, to those currently out in the field, working with a partner nation's people or leadership to forward U.S. relations, thank you all for what you're doing. This is Jack, your host. Stay tuned for more great episodes, 1CA Podcast.